And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this prophecy, of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of, this, of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me, to give to every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Especially in the words of verse 12 and 15, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his, as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. for the nation, for the individual believer, uh, that 
that we look back over a year and look forward to a year in God's mercy uh, that he's bringing to pass. And that it reminds us that time does move forward. And uh, that is no more emphasized than in the book of Revelation itself. Um, because the book shows us time hurtling forward uh, with an urgency uh, to the time when time will stop. And when we will have no more time. We will have no more time to consider the gospel. We will have no more time to change. As the word said that we read together, let him who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Let him who is holy, let him be holy still. That imminence of Christ's glory as judge and Lord might come to us in this own time in our own life. We don't know precisely when Jesus will unveil himself in glory and shake this world and stop the clock of time and do these things. But should he come to you or I tonight in death, then these words come from where they are far away and they hurtle towards us in a hospital room or in a car or laying in our bed because the clock will stop then. We have this feeling that we have time. Uh, it is an illusion. And uh, we must all make sure that we are standing in the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of him in us in progressive holiness because he who is filthy and unforgiven, when that moment comes, that is how it shall remain. He who is standing in the justified righteousness of Christ when that moment comes, that's how they will remain. And as you consider him coming, his, uh, the natural thought of that wouldn't be as great as the event itself. And these words, pure words from the Holy Spirit, help shake us into considering the one that we are going to meet in this way. And the words of this text, especially verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, spoken by Jesus, shows us the might and the immensity and the glory of the one whom we consider, the one whom we call Savior, the one whom we call Lord, the one who is the head of his church, the one whom we go to the lost and say to them, have you heard of Jesus? This is what he has done. Come to him. This is the one of whom we speak. His imminence is in this chapter, but also something about him that is attached to that idea of history I just spoke of, that as time moves forward, as our lives move forward, as the life of the church progresses forward in each generation, he stands above all and says of himself upon it that of all of that, he is the Alpha and the Omega. That he is the beginning of it and the end of it. And of all history itself, he is its Alpha. He is its Omega. These phrases in verse 13, there's three of them, they mean the same thing, uh, just with some slightly different flavor. And maybe some origin too. I think that uh, the first and the last, for example, is an Old Testament designation. 
uh, that's being spoken by the Holy Spirit here. That's a Jewish way of saying this. That God said to his people in Isaiah, I am the first, I am the last, I am Jehovah. Before me there was no other, nor after me. I am above all and beyond all, and I originated all things. I am the first and the last. The phrase, the beginning and end, seems to be the Greek uh, version of that. Uh, that would impact uh, who Jesus is speaking to here. These Asian churches of originally the Greek Empire, now the Roman Empire, the beginning and the end. And those two letters of the Greek alphabet that Jesus assigns to himself here, the first letter of the alphabet and the last. So it seems to be that he, he calls himself here mainly Alpha and Omega, and then he adds to it a kind of Old Testament and New Testament uh, impactful emphasis. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. God says this of himself in Isaiah 43, in Isaiah 44, in Isaiah 48, as he tells Israel, as he tells Judah, that they will be broken up, brought to Babylon, and will suffer, and will doubt his covenant love, because he has to do that to them because of their declension, idolatry, lukewarmness. But as he delivers those judgments to them, and knows they will actually go, know that they will actually go through it. <clears throat> he says things like this uh, as a standard to them. He raises that up to show them that in the midst of that, they can come back to him, that he is their maker, that he is their God, that his covenant does stand, and that there's mercy and grace in whoever with a contrite heart turns back to him, seeking him, his love and his holiness. God says this, of himself. And remember this morning, as we finish this year, as you go into a new one, that it is God alone who is the first. The first of history, the first port of call of priority and importance in your life, that the greatest and first commandment concerns him and his position in your life and how you know him, but that he's the end too. He starts and ends everything. He starts and ends a church. He starts and ends your life. He starts and ends this year. And as is emphasized in this book, most of all, this book of the Revelation, he starts and ends all history. So that's how God reveals himself in this book. These titles, Alpha, Omega, Beginning and End, First and Last, a version of them is said seven times in the book. And you'll know that the book is constructed that way. There are seven bowls of wrath, seven churches, seven angels, and so on. A number of fullness and completion in our, in our Lord's scripture. When he communicates that, he's communicating perfection and wholeness. That, that nothing's missing. That it cycles back again to the beginning. That when we take it all together, this is it. This is the fullness of what he's done. And as he speaks over the sevens of what he's done, that there are seven trumpets announcing his arrival. There are seven bowls of wrath and so on. He says of himself seven times, remember who I am. I am Alpha and Omega as you go through this in your life and as you go through this in 
the church. Now, as I said to you there uh, from verse 12, that he comes quickly and his reward is uh, with him to give every man according to his work. How much you and I need to remember this, that we build up these works, that we've lived a life of works this year. And if we're spared this year, everything we do is a, is a work unto the Lord. And these works are all brought before him and so on. And we must labor for him. We must do it in grace, knowing that we are obviously not justified by works, uh, that we are not. Uh, ultimately our standing before God is not based upon those works. But you know this and you've been taught it enough by your minister as to what these works are. That the faith must produce this service and this obedience as we take up our cross and follow him. That's our work. But when Jesus says here, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last, and sums up what he has done, his work is in focus too, as he completes his work at the end of this book. For although elsewhere in the book, God says, I am Alpha and Omega, that he brings all this to pass, that he carries on history, that he brings to completion, Jesus then stands next to God, if you think of him in his mediatorial capacity, and he says, I am Alpha and Omega. You remember that Jesus said, None shall snatch you out of the Father's hand, nor snatch you out of my hand. I and my Father are one. He makes a distinction, but the moment after he makes the distinction, he tells you the reason he's doing it is to show you that they're the same. By Jesus saying this at the end of the book, as standing there as the coming judge, and saying of himself, I am Alpha and Omega, he is saying that he has the same glory as God. That even in his incarnated form, even as mediator, as God-man, even though he breathes these words from a human mouth, at the same time it's a divine mouth. Because he can look at the immense being of God, his own being, in the fullness of the sonship. And he can... Be there, as Revelation says, that I sat down on my Father's throne. That the Father and Christ are there. That the glory of the Father is revealed about the, around the throne in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, the Lamb is on the throne. Jesus is saying here that it's, that it's not enough for us to just say to one another, God is in charge of history. God originated history. And God will close history. And he's our God. Jesus follows that up and says, but who is your God? It's more specific. It's not simply God is sovereign and will close history. And that he will send Christ. It's Christ himself is the Alpha and the Omega of history. And that comes through in this chapter. I want to consider three things that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of that come through in this book and are summarized in this crescendo culminating chapter. Uh, first, that he's Alpha and Omega of creation. Second, he's Alpha and Omega of the church. And third, he's Alpha and Omega of you, the believer if you are in Christ. So first, 
that he's Alpha and Omega of the creation. You see that in verse 12 he says he's coming in judgment. And that is because he's bringing this era of the creation to a close. That he's, he's closing off this era of creating Eden and then fall and then gospel and then gathering saints from the nations. That whole era of history, he's the one that brings it to a close. He brings world history to a close. You can see that in where, uh, how these words finalize the book because the entire chapter before is all about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's new that, that uh, the essence of heaven and the church come down to be on a newly constituted creation. And it describes it all there. I don't want to get into the detail of what all those things mean right now. But simply to say that as you read the end of chapter 21 and the first few verses of chapter 22, you see this recreation. That from the ashes of a judged world that Peter tells us is melted with a fervent heat. Behold, I see a new heaven and a new earth. That is what Jesus is doing in judgment. He comes in chapter 20 to bring everyone before the great white throne to judge them morally. But he's doing something to the creation too. It's part of this. It was under man. And Jesus in his work is redeeming it. And it's not just us that were resurrected and made new on that last day. The earth itself will experience a conflagration. It will be burned up. And from the molten mass of that work, whatever, it's for another time, giving all the details of what that will be. He brings forth a new creation. Now God does this. He originated it and he closes it. He is the creator. And that thunders out in this book. It's not like uh, Paul's epistles. There's this book at the end of the Bible where you have Jesus speaking from heaven through his angel to the apostle John. A final word. And you can tell as you read it that the, the angle of this word is not horizontal from the mouth of Paul, Peter, or John in their other writings. The angle of this word is from above. That's why it's so difficult to read this, this last book. It's coming from the mind of God in a particular way. It's displaying in pictorial, prophetic form the, the, the things God has promised, and it's coming from the mind of God. And he sweeps through in 22 chapters from the time of Christ's ascension and so on, to this very culminating point of all history and all that happens in between. That's quite a feat to do in 22 chapters. But here it is. And you can see in these chapters that the voice of God thunders, literally sometimes, it's actual thunder. It thunders out in the vision, vision to John to give John a sense and us a sense through it of him as creator. You remember in chapter 4 and 5 where... John sees the throne in a vision, the very throne of the creation. The living creatures are around that throne, and all the earth is before it. All the angels and seraphim, they, 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 um, they fly and are sustained around it, ready to do God's bidding. And his glory is seen, and it's described in terms of color and light and so on. And thunderous words are heard from the throne. I am he who was. He who is, 
he who is to come. And God is saying, I am the sovereign. I am the creator. And that's why we worship him in that chapter. Remember, they, they worship him and say, for by you all things were created and by you they exist. And that's who he is. And it pans further into the throne and a lamb is seen, Jesus himself. But God is saying to us uh, to, to come out of our narrow view of our day-to-day -day lives and to remember that this universe, this earth, this creation, the nations, the governments, the rise and fall of each nation, here, throughout the nations, all the commotion, all that we seem not be able to control, God tells his suffering church in Revelation, I am in control. I made all things, and it's only sustained by the word of my power, for I brought it into being. I am Alpha and Omega of it. Before it was an Alpha, the creation, it wasn't there. When the first letter was struck on that creation, Alpha, it was God that did that. He began it. And every letter since, and he knows its final point. He's in complete control of it. He is Alpha and Omega of a creation that's unfolding. God did that. He is the Alpha of all things. Give him the glory. When you sing in this place, when we pray in this place, when we speak to one another in this place, when we hear his word in this place, he is the Alpha. There's many men who think they are the Alpha. There are governments that think they are the Alpha. There are economies that think they are the Alpha, and everything rises and falls by those economies. There are militaries that think they are the Alpha. God forbid there are churches that think they're the Alpha, and people in those churches that think they're the Alpha. God is the Alpha. How can we stand before such a being and think anything of ourselves? He not only controls it, but he brought it into being for, from nothing. And that Revelation emphasizes that, that you created this. Now he created that, not making it from other things, not designing it wonderfully from a, a massive play or other things, but time itself, the universe, space, all the things that these great scientists look into and are discovering with their telescopes and so on. The, 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 the galaxies and the cosmos. These things that they say now, galaxy clusters, local galaxy clusters, then gargantuan measures of space in between, and then other galaxy clusters. And we can't get our mind around the size of these parameters. And God says, I breathed and it came into being. When God said at the beginning of the Bible that he made it all, it's not a word simply to make, it's a specific word, bara which means to create, essentially, from nothing. Where did the power come from, and the material, and the space-time that he stretches out, and the light, and the heat, and the laws of nature, and the atoms, and the energy, and the electromagnetism, and all the, all the forces of nature that are in play, the quarks within the atoms. The nuclear force within the atoms that holds them together. 
that we've, we're only just discovering. Where did, where did it all come from? The one that you call Father thought of these things and breathed and spoke and they came into being. Now God says that and it's wonderful that he says it. But Jesus says, I am its Alpha too. I am its Alpha. This very apostle earlier that he wrote this book when he thought back upon his time with the Lord and we'll see that God willing if we have a series on uh, the seven signs in John's gospel as John thought back and thought about the water turning into wine and the, the raising of a lame man and the multiplying of the bread these very localized um, unveilings of power and as he, as he thought how do I tell people who I came to know this Jesus to be and he begins in chapter 1. Remember what he said in the beginning. He calls Jesus the Word. Now he's talking about this. This is what he's pointing out. When he says that Jesus is the Word, he's pointing out that all things came into existence through that Word. He says that. All things came into being through him. All things were made through him. And without him, Nothing was made that was made. That's the personal identity of the Messiah, the Son of God, the coming judge. The one who, God willing, if we're truly his, we are united to him right now. That person, that God-man that you will see one day, his identity, if you dig deep enough and find out what's going on inside of him and trace it to who he truly is, that person fills all things. And is the second subsistence of the Holy Trinity. The one through whom God, by the Holy Spirit, said, let there be light. And there was light. That's who our Savior is. And he can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He says in chapter 3 of this book, in verse 14, to the church in Laodicea, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now cults, some of you will know, will take a saying like that. He's the beginning of the creation of God. Or all things were made through him. And they say, yes, God made him first. And made him a mighty being. And through him then made all other things. But that's not allowed. That's illogical, and the text never bears that up in both places, in John 1 and in Revelation 3. In John 1, for example, um, it says, Without him, nothing was made that was made. So what John's telling us there is not that all that you see around you came into being, um, and that you can say, well, that's because he made the Son of God first. And in his mighty power, it was all made. That's not what John is saying. John is saying very definitely and emphatically that when all things that began to exist, all things that had a beginning, when they began, the Son was already there. So that proves the Son of God didn't have a beginning. When all things that are generated began, 
when all things that have an origin and have a beginning, when anything that was made was created, the Son of God was not only there, he was doing it. He was the Word doing it. That shows us the immense might and glory of Jesus, that he originated all things, that he doesn't have a beginning. When he says, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he's saying he's in control of that beginning and the end, and that he's beyond these parameters, that he's beyond the beginning and beyond the end. I am he who was, who is, who is to come. Isn't it astonishing to think of your Savior that way? When you look upon him by faith, when you seek him to love him and know him, when you want to know that he is with you personally, and then you delve deeply into who it is that is your Savior, and who it is that you are seeking. He did it. Jesus did it. He is the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus was there in his person, the Son of God. It was him that formed Adam. It was him that walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And that very personal um, description we get in the Garden of Eden, where it says Adam's body was made, and then the Hebrew says, and then God breathed into him the breath of life. The idea in the Hebrew there is if one person approaches another, it gives them that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It's that closeness. When it says he breathed into him the breath of life, there is the idea of closeness, that he went to him and actually breathed into him. The person who was there, Father, Son, Spirit, all things from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, the breath, into them the breath of life. All three. All working. Jesus is the Alpha of creation. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Alpha of creation uh, from this text, it's not only that he made it and originated it, but he's the Alpha and Omega of its history. So he brought it to pass and made it with a purpose in mind, with a decree, with a plan. And it's him that unfolds its history. We see that clearly in the book, don't we? The, the book lays out a progressive history as you read it, and it's brought to its culminating point here. And when Jesus says at the start of the book, in the healing of John, as John said, I heard behind me a voice saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, send this to the seven churches. When he says it there, and then he says it here right at the end, He's communicating to the church whatever tribulations the church goes through in its expansions and revivals and reformations, in its declensions and corruptions and attacks of Satan, when the false prophet and the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea rage against her with ten horns and seven heads and spew forth water to drown and destroy her. Jesus is saying at the beginning of the book and at the end, I'm the Alpha and Omega, not just powerful that I made all of this, but the whole thing is planned and it's under my control. So Christ is the Alpha and Omega, not just of the creation of these things, but of the unfolding 
of these things, of the decree itself. And you remember, in chapter 1, uh, verse 19, I'll read from verse 18. Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Now listen to what he says. Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. How does Jesus know that? He, he speaks there in his glorified state from heaven with a knowledge, an intimate knowledge of the things that have been and the things which are and the things which will take place after after this. It's revealed through Christ. The, verse, the, the beginning of the book tells us that this is the revelation of John, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, which God gave him. This is, I can't open this out right now, but it says there that God gave Christ these revelations. And that Christ then sent his angel to testify unto John and did it by his own voice. But the point right now is that let's make it practical, not speculative, and just about theology. Here we are in this church, here you are in your life, in your family, and you want to live for Jesus Christ. We're dealing in a situation here with one, our Alpha and Omega, who says very straightforwardly that he knows what was and what is and what shall happen hereafter. He knows. The implication is he not only knows, he's carrying it out. In chapter 5 of the book, God's decree is seen. When his might is seen on his throne, a scroll appears, written on front and back, with all the decrees of God upon it. Now that front and back is showing again nothing is missing. It's a full decree. It has a fullness. Everything is covered. Not one grace will be missed, not one judgment will be missed, not one outpouring of wrath will be missed, not one word to his people will be missed. The whole thing is full. The scroll is full. God will not hold back. The whole thing is planned and decreed. The scroll is written front and back. And you know what happens. No one can be found to open the scroll. And Jesus himself, obviously, takes hold of it and begins to break its seals. Now that's showing Jesus in his glorified might and his God-man position of what he said when he gave the Great Commission. All things have been delivered unto me, all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus is the governor of this scroll, of the decree of God. And not just in as God-man, in his eternal personhood, he is the decreer anyway. As God, in his divine nature, that all things were planned in God's eternal and immutable decree. Now what I thought that is, and it's good to hear it, at the end of a year, as you think about your place and your energy and your activities and your service for Christ. It is important to remember, all things have been decreed by God and by Jesus himself. It's all decreed already. Now there's a tension there. Because you must live. And you must not sinfully speculate about that decree. You must not say, I'm not going to do anything. Or I'm not going to make this decision. Or I'm not going to 
reach out in faith or reach out in love to this beloved brother or reach the lost. Why? Because God has decreed everything. It will all work out. No, his decree includes us taking up our cross and following him. His decree includes speaking the gospel to every creature. His decree includes you mortifying your selfishness, hard-heartedness, resentment, and division, and loving your fellow brother. His decree includes all of that. But the point right now must be remembered, and it is very important for us to remember, that we are moving on a map that is planned, that is fixed. It's an immutable plan, decree, and Jesus is breaking the seals and unfolding it, um, that all things would be done uh, for God and Christ's glory, and that all things would work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now that text from Paul there in Romans 8 is a perfect label to put on this entire book of Revelation, that all things work together for the good, that it's all governed for the good of the church. You see history unfolding in the book of Revelation, and the church is attacked. There are immense dynamic forces against the church, the serpent himself, and all his emissaries, and there's violence, there's, there's fire, there's attack. But the theme of the book is that it all does work together for the good of those who love God. And are they called according to his purpose? So you're not going to get one or the other. You're not going to get all disaster from the enemies of the church. And you're not going to get the church is pure and never attacked and everything is as it should be in the church in every generation. What we get are both from the time of John until Christ returns. We get both. We get in God's decree, in his own wisdom, <coughs> that the church is a bride who is seeking to be pure. And that there are attacks and false prophets, that there are entire empires that try and devour her, but at the right moments God delivers her. And that very pressure and animosity is actually used for the sanctification and purity of the church. But that's where you are and I am as we make our plans in, in ministry and in witness. Whatever yours and, and my callings are, we're looking at a map. And one thing we should be sure of in America and in the West as we see the declensions and so on, one thing we can be sure of is that the serpent will attack and deceive the world, the nations, and the church, that the beast of the, of the Roman Empire, or the Russian Empire, or the British Empire, or the Nazi Empire, and now the American Empire, or the European Empire, or the Chinese Empire, that that beast, with its ten horns of perfection and its seven heads of fullness and subtlety and deceit and anti-Christ, you can be sure that both these things are going on. That these attacks do happen and that the church must cry out to God and that Christ will be victorious in taking the reins of his church and guiding her exactly where she's supposed to be so that she'll never be obliterated or mortally wounded as a body, the Church of Christ throughout the world right now. By the way, um, the, well, I'll, I'll come to that when we come to the Church, but he has a decree. Christ is King in his divine nature, his human nature, of that decree 
and he is carrying it all out. Now, as I leave this point in the creation, um, he brings that creation to a close. So he originates it, he carries out its decree and its history exactly. He does it for the good of his people, his own glory. And there is an end point. There is a, an omega uh, point. And God knows what it is. Jesus knows what it is. There is a blast of a trumpet. There is an arrival. There is an arrival in might and victory in which Jesus comes. And everyone must be aware of it. And I don't assume because you're in church or because you've become a member or because you're the child of members that, that you know God um, or know Christ in this way. I, I bless him that you know about him and that you're learning these things and so on. But this is for our souls and our souls must all reckon with this fact that Jesus is coming back. And that all of us, like when he came to Egypt and all the doorposts had to be covered in blood. You, friend, even if you're the smallest child here, when, as you hear your pastor each week speaking to you about Jesus, you need to make sure that you believe in him, that you know and love him, and that that blood has been applied to you personally. Because when he comes back, that's the thing that will matter fundamentally. That will be the thing which has cleansed you. That will be the thing that has marked you as one of his. That will place his mark on your forehead. That's faith in Christ and believing in him unto salvation is the thing that unites you to Jesus Christ. And he comes, he says, there are those on the outside um, that are, uh, in verse 15, dogs, sorcerers, whores, murderers, idolaters, liars, and all other manifestations of those who are still in the flesh and still in their sin. You can't be their friend. Even if you're young and these aren't big murders yet, or big lies, or big lusts, they're there. They're in us all. They're in us all. And they need constantly cut down and hacked back by the Holy Spirit like weeds. They need uprooted. They need serious operation. These things are in man. And if it's all we have, even if they're in their initial young form, when Christ comes, our law-breaking will damn us. And we will be seen for what we are, which is filthy if we're outside of Christ. But beloved, if you come to Christ, you will not be designated by the word filthy, but righteous and holy. And let him who is righteous be righteous still. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of creation. He's also concurrently with that, the Alpha and Omega of the church. And we see that, as I've described to you there throughout the book, that as you read this book of redemptive and providential history, you always see the world and its history and the church, that both are running together. That there is false doctrine and error in, in the first couple of chapters, and that is there around the churches. That Jesus is Alpha and Omega walking among the seven churches. 
that the history is unfolding very much based on what is going on in those churches. We see in chapter 12, the church being attacked by Satan, first trying to destroy Christ, then trying to destroy her. And on and on it goes until we reach our chapters where the capstone of the prophecy is that the church comes down from above, purified, blessed, to be with Jesus forever. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Now, when the, mar when the Marriage Supper of the Lamb is that great culminating fruition of history, if that's what we're looking to, that shows you that history is very much about Jesus and his bride. He is the Alpha and Omega of the church. Chapter 21, verse 9 to 11. Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Um, when he says Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, first and last, he is the Alpha and the beginning of the church itself. Um, those words, um, beginning, is the word arche, and the end, telos. Arche is where we get the word architect from, the beginning, or different forms of the words. You can get the idea of building and originating. That uh, end word, beginning and end, is a word you know from the cross when Jesus cried out. It's based on that word, tetelestai, a telos. It, it's not like in English where I just say, that's the end of that. It's not just a time thing, the end. It has the idea of completion, that things are finished, that they're done, they're complete. And that's true not only of history, but the church itself within history. He begins her and builds her, and he will complete her. That's what he said in the verse I just read to you there. Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. She has made her, she has washed herself in the blood of the lamb. She is pure. She is complete. Now the church has that blessing too, within the history that Christ is unfolding. We see in this chapter the primacy of the church. I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. The book ends with the spirit and the bride in verse 17, saying, Come, in verse 16, I've sent you to testify these things among the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. It's among the churches. It has the church's completion in mind. Let's not underestimate the word bride. What's more important to a husband than his bride? What's more important to Christ? as he breaks the seals of history and unfolds the plan of God, than the prosperity of his bride. He is its architect, and he is its completer. Now that beginning has a similar beginning to the creation. I say similar, because the church's beginning, in a, in a certain way, if we emphasize it, is before, before that point of creation, is it not? That... In the eternal covenant of redemption, the church began to be built. We can use such words like began. But that's its origin. That in the, um, in the councils of eternity, 
the church was formulated in the plan and in the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our chapter, we're told that their names will not be taken from the book of life. Elsewhere in this prophecy, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. The ledger he uses to identify the elect from non-elect, the saved from the unsaved. That has its origin before he even created the universe. He himself said, didn't he? Father, I now pray to you for those whom thou hast given me. They were yours. You gave them to me. Professor John Murray calls that the donation of the elect. The giving of the elect to the Son in eternity. Before the universe was even made, God's people were in that ledger and were elect and loved and they were already promised and given to Christ. They already belonged to him. We're told in the scripture too, aren't we, that, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So these are all in the purposes of God and they're all certain. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. The names were in the book. The people were given unto Christ before the foundation of the world. And the entire history of the church was already planned in affection by God. And these are comforting things as we walk in our history that seems at times to be a bit out of control or unpredictable to us. There's so much we don't know. And it's very helpful to remember these things and to fuel your devotion to Jesus at this time. Very difficult things could be happening to you, but when you start to take stock of these things, was my name in the book before Cosmos came to be? And was he slain for me in terms of a certain purpose of God before the foundation of the world for me and my brethren? So I must love him and her. The Lamb was slain for my brethren. And for the elect who are lost out there, who we still need to find. The Lamb was slain for them. They're already selected by the shepherd. We must find them. How pra- These aren't just theological intricacies, are they? They're very practical. How much fuel, what a great foundation that gives you and I to consider the, the firm foundation of eternality that these things arise from. Jesus is the Alpha of the church way back then. The promise given to the woman in the garden upon the fall. A seed promised, all certain. He he builds the church himself. He told Peter, of course, um, on this rock of your confession of myself as the Son of God, on this rock I will build my church. I will raise her up and build her edifice. And he says in this chapter something that speaks to that in verse 16. I'm the root, I'm the offspring of David, he says. Very interesting. He came as Messiah as the offspring of David. He came from the very body of David. He's from a line, but he is also the root of all of that. David came from him. He's the root of David. 
on the root of Abraham, the root of the church, the he, Jesus. What a great title for Jesus, the root, the root. He didn't just make all things. He's the root from which the church grew, even in the Garden of Eden. That evangelical promise given to Adam and Eve, appearing unto Abraham, appearing unto Moses, sending prophet after prophet to speak and breathe his word to the church. Jesus is the root of all that as Son of God, as the Word who is with God and the Word who was God. Jesus is the root of the church. And many times it's been cut down. In Israel and Judah it was cut down. Laodicea, its church is gone. Will you find a Reformed church in Ephesus today? Will you find them in North Africa? Will you find them in Rome? Will you find them in Istanbul? Will you find them in London or Edinburgh? Churches are cut down. This is true. And yet the church has never disappeared, has it? It gets cut down in judgment and Satan is gnawing at the roots of that church and out, out sprouts another one in China. Because the root is good. The stump of Jesse is good. Jesus is the head of the body. He is the vine from which the vine branches grow. He is the root of David. He is the root of the church. I will build my church. And he sent them brick by brick. We changed the figure to build that church. Prophets, priests, kings, believers, families, all throughout the Old Testament, preserving his people in Persia and Israel throughout the time of silence when no prophets spoke. And then when, when John the Baptist was born and our Savior himself came forth, building, he, we're told by the apostles that Jesus established his church upon the apostles and the prophets. And he's built it, hasn't he? That's the message of the book of Revelation. In spite of the rivers that would drown her, in spite of the beasts who would devour her, in spite of the prophets who would beguile and lead her astray, yet here we are. Here we are. That's Jesus um, confirmed his own word that the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. He built it through his word. All of the words he spoke and all her history from Alpha in the time of the Apostles and Beta and all the letters as he spread her to North Africa, covered Asia with her, took over Europe with her, covered the Roman Empire with her. And this, the serpent fights back and so on. There needs to be a reformation, covered the British Empire with her planted her in the Americas, then in the subcontinent, in South America now, in Africa, in China, in Thailand, in Iran, Singapore, where these roots are sprouting up. He is building his church. You and I take a practical lesson from that today. As we look at this nation where we've been called to serve, our own denomination this congregation and we look at it and we we say do I pray should I expect a great revival as has happened in other places 
Should I expect that? Or should I expect more um, attacks and a time where the church goes through the flame or the church is taken into Babylon to be refined, as she has been many times, as she was in the Old Testament? As we look at the beast of this nation, with its horns and its seven heads, speaking forth blasphemous things, and clearly animated by emissaries of the evil one, if not Satan himself, affecting the government, affecting local government, affecting law enforcement, affecting universities, affecting corporations and boardrooms. Make no mistake, uh, the enemy never slumbers nor sleeps, and uh, he is at work. And you ask practically, how do I serve? What should I expect? Well, we must always pray for revival, knowing God can do it. There is a time to be where you almost feel the wave of it coming, and you can ride that wave, that, that you can see what God is doing and expect it. There are other times, though, brethren, when Jeremiah prays for revival, and God says to him, don't pray for that. You are going, Judah is going to Babylon, and I will chasing her for 70 years. Stop asking me. Even if Noah, Job, and Daniel asked me for this, the prophet was told, I would only deliver them. I would not deliver this people. You see, Jesus does this, doesn't he? As history unfolds and as his church is built, and as she is blessed with reformation and revival, and as she falls away and takes it for granted and then is brought through fire, Jesus does this, doesn't he? He has two glorious works. One is of grace and one is of judgment. And we must glorify him for both. They both show his justice. They both show his wisdom. And he is righteous altogether in both of these approaches. So pray that there would be a revival and reformation of true churches in this land. But be clear, my friend, that simply praying strongly for a revival, if it is not... God's will for this corner of the earth right now as it is in other places simply repeating that to him will not make him do it and we must be discerning so we we trust his character and pray for the right thing thy kingdom come that his kingdom may come in reformation or his kingdom may come in him turning to the last century and the culminating last 20 years of the church and the nation provoking him to his face and willfully going down Sodom and Gomorrah territory. And his kingdom coming may look like candlesticks being removed, people being shaken, you and I being awoken from our comfort and our slumber by persecution. The apostles wanted all these things. They wanted reformation and revival and so on. But they were persecuted. And the church was persecuted many times, wasn't she? But that sometimes is good for the church. So I don't know what to tell you. I prayed for great revivals for many years myself. When I saw that they were so very possible in my own native country, I'm here. But every day we see, don't we, that it's like people are being given over to further foolishness and wickedness. Now what do you say is you want to serve Christ throughout this year? Well... His church will stand. And you don't look at it as God is not blessing his people. He may be blessing us in this way by refining the church.
let me close with saying something about you as a consideration. The, the creation with its history and the church have a, a, a governed and close history uh, that Jesus is unfolding, but you're in the midst of that and it's not impersonal. You're part of Jesus' consideration of the whole body of Christ. Now, if you are in him, my dear brother and sister, whatever is going on with you right now, whether there's sin, great disappointment and pain, and brokenheartedness, or discouragement, or your pressure physically and spiritually at work, or you feel like you're going to break and your soul is under strain, or your will is confused and you, you don't know which way to take and you can't see Christ's will for you, and Christ sees you and he cares for you. That must be emphasized. Christ isn't just looking at great nations and movements of history. He sees you in the midst of it, for the believer's name is in his book. And you have a history too, and God cares about that. And if you've come to Christ and you have the marks of grace in your life, and you've been assured that you have faith and so on, you can look at the book of election and you can say to yourself, it seems to be that the marks are there in my life that correspond to this book, and I've known the love of Christ assuredly, and I know I'm one of his, and my name is in that book. Friend, the devil will come to you in various experiences to seek to prove to you that God does not care, or that you, you will not overcome this sin, or the pieces will not be put back together, or that decision you made that turned out to be very unwise and just brought a whole lot of grief uh, and it's been made known to you that it wasn't Christ's will for you and you feel that you can't put it back together. Your life does have a plan. I know there are false prophets that come and the famous thing they say is God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a plan for you if you're in him. And sometimes that plan is painful. Trust me, I know that from personal experience. Sometimes you, you can look at what God is doing in your experience, the hard things he has to teach you, and you might ask, does he hate me? I, I can't squeeze a drop of joy out of this. How can this be good? Oh, my friend. Your pastor emphasized to you recently, it was good that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. When you only want nice experiences from God, that is not his definition of good, as we would not do it to our own children. It was good that I was afflicted. I feel like I'm the only one left. Everyone else is an unbeliever, and I have no friend that sticks close to my brother, like the psalmist in Psalm 73. It's all for nothing, and it's all over. And then the psalmist says this, but surely it was good for me that I drew near to God. In God I trust. God may have to do very difficult things to his presumptuous church that wouldn't listen to him. He may do very hard things to her to make her listen. And you don't pick up on those things as good, but they are good. If they make us draw near to God and they make us grow in faith, and they afflict us to turn to rely on God. My friend, 
Satan is a murderer and he will come to you and say, you're just sinful dust. You've messed all this up. You're worthless now. Look how much you've failed. You aren't like these great Christians or these great ministers that do X, Y, or Z or these great missionaries or these people that always seem joyful and holy in their family. But I don't see that. Where is the Christ for me? You have a beginning and end that he knows very intimately. Don't let Satan lie to you if you're in Christ and tell you you're worthless. He, before you were in the womb, he knew you. That should have a point. The, the code of your DNA, which is several billion letters long, he wrote it to make you. You're not meaningless or unimportant. He built you. He did, in the womb. You're a creature made in God's image. And if you've come to Christ, you're more than a creature made in God's image. You're a child of God and a possession of the Almighty. You're one of his jewels that he has gathered up. And you are precious in his sight. Yet you are not perfect. You are very sinful. Our Father knows, and he is dealing with that sin. It is being dealt with. He will suck the poison from the wound, as we would do for any of our children. Yes, you're sinful, but he built you. The alphas and omega, omegas that are in your very blood cells were written by him. He gave you your body. He made your soul. He enlightened your conscience. He brought a Bible before you. He brought a gospel before you. You matter to Christ. And if he mends you, refines you, pressurizes you, rebukes you, he will comfort you. He will restore you. He will express his love to you. He will mend you. The end of the book of Hebrews says, as it pictures him as the great shepherd who's working in his people, when it says he works in you what's well pleasing in his sight, a word is used from the apostles that was it was used of them as Christ approached them on the sea of the shore of Galilee and they were mending their nets. And that's described as a work of Christ as a shepherd. That as nets, nets are broken and mended, Jesus does that to your soul. A brokenness, a disobedience, a correction. These are all expressions of his love in your conscience, awakening your conscience, mortifying your flesh, pulling out that anger, that lust, that presumptuousness, that flippancy, whatever it is, whatever is your set of besetting sins, he wants to deal with it. Go to him. Go to him. And that work that he's doing in you has an omega point. He who began the work, the famous words of Paul, will bring it to completion. And you see all of those things coming together at the culminating point of this book, that these three great works. You see that the creation that was fallen and cursed is brought forth in newness. You see a church who was persecuted and stained 
and even in her own sin, you see her growing in faithfulness and purified and appearing ready for her wedding day, having made herself ready. And you see her pure in these culminating chapters in chapter 21. And you see the believers brought before God's throne, their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who are righteous are made righteous still. And they are invited in to, to the city. The gates of it shall not be shut by day. There will be no, no night there. Chapter 22, verse 5. Um, they shall reign forever and ever with him. So that's the decree of Christ as Alpha and Omega. He began these three processes. And you're looking around at all these events internationally and in your own life and self. But remember, there is a work spurring on in all three of these things. You, you can't stop it. You can, you can wreck it. You cannot respond to the cause of sanctification in yourself. And you can really do damage to your own spiritual life. You can wreck the church by being divisive or uh, bringing in things to it that, that are wrong or uh, in lots of ways. But my point is... These things are going to move forward, and Jesus will return. So it is far better as you look around you in the nations and his unfolding decree, as you work in the church with her imperfections and her persecutions, and you seek the lost, and you look at yourself. You are not the finished product. There's a lot wrong with you and me. All three of these things. These areas are works that Christ is doing. So you work with him. He worketh these things in us. And we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But he is Alpha, friend, of it all. Remember that. Remember as you are in it, he is in control. And may you or I always have one eye as we labor diligently, have one eye on that omega point. This creation will be capstoned. The Church of Christ, collector, reformer, but don't get so worked up that you start wrecking her uh, because she is imperfect, but her capstone moment is coming. And that's, a, that's a, an encouraging thought. You're not going to get church perfection right now, ultimately. But we don't need to despair in the sense that it's so frustrating that the church can't be what she ought to be. Um, we must always remember that there will come a time where the church will be one holy Catholic church and she will be perfected. These are very encouraging and fruitful thoughts uh, that Jesus uh, gives to us in the scripture. And may God uh, enable us all then to live by faith under the Alpha uh, and the Omega. May God bless uh, these thoughts uh, upon his word. Let's stand to call this day in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, uh, we pray that you would apply the word to our hearts um, and that the great thoughts that you give at the end of your word uh, would be nourishing to us and that we would hear the loud call of Jesus Christ when he cries in authority 
and glory and assurance that he is in control. And this name that he gives to himself it does not only tell us that we should be comforted and encouraged by his sovereignty, but that he should be greatly honoured by us at every moment. Who are we to argue with him, or to resist him, or to leave off giving him the glory that is due, when he stands before us in glory and, and says this of himself, that he is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. This is breathtaking, and we, we should fall down before him and say the Lord, the Lord God, to say as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Give us hearts then to serve him and uh, to see that one of these works that he is very active in is the work of dealing with our own sin and our own service and the development of our own graces faith hope love long-suffering meekness patience that love is patient it is kind it doesn't envy it doesn't boast it does not behave rudely it is long-suffering it doesn't rejoice in iniquity but it rejoices and delights in the truth. It believes all things. It endures all things. It hopes. Lord, uh, we pray that you would work this great work of the Holy Spirit in us always today, throughout today, throughout this coming week that you've established.